Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15 and 31 through 33, which is found on page 970 in your pew Bibles. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are, you blessed us so much today already. Um, you've given us a new day to be alive, the opportunity to gather with your people, to remember um, what you've done for us so that we could be cleansed and made whole and, and that your love never fails. Lord, teach us. Amen. And so um, this uh, sermon isn't done yet. In other words, it's still being written. <laughs> um, and so you get to be a part of that this morning. Um, already split it into two. Um, we'll, we'll listen to the next part next week. Um, so be showing me some grace if it's a little rough on the edges. And uh, I've been trying to keep my sermons and with the prayers and uh, scripture reading to 30 minutes. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll get there. Hopefully it'll be close to that today. But please pray for me and, and uh, let's experience God's grace together. So it's no secret that the church is in trouble. Um, it's divisions, it's diminishing numbers are telling us the story. And there's any number of reasons people can give for that. The surrounding culture is less Christian. Um, and we live in a part of the country. All the statistics or the studies say that we're at the bottom of the list in terms of areas in this country where people orient themselves in relationship to scripture. The media, you know, there's uh, social media, um, priest scandals. I mean, there's any number of reasons why we could give. 
But this morning I'd like to, to suggest a particular reason. And it has to do with us, we who are in the church rather than those who are in the culture. And, and it has something to do with our series, the journey that we've been on since September called Followers. And this is what I'm wondering. If as much as anything, it has something to do with the fact that a lot of us are looking for Jesus to follow us rather than our following Jesus. We believe in Jesus, but we're looking for him to follow us rather than looking for ourselves to follow him. And certainly there's nothing wrong with wanting Jesus with us as we go into those places where we live, work, play, and learn. But there's a difference between having him follow after us and our following him into those places. Um, and so, as one person put it, um, it can be a matter of um, trying, to, you know, trying to fit God into our plans as opposed to our fitting into God's plans. Nikki Gumbel, the uh, founder of the Alpha Course, wrote recently, um, we're trying to fit God into our schedules rather than scheduling our lives around God. Eugene Peterson, who uh, wrote the message, a, a modern translation of the Bible, pastor, author, wrote, and he was talking about God's holiness. God cannot fit into our plans. We must fit into his we can't use God. God is not a tool or appliance or credit card. Holy is the word that sets God apart and above our attempts to enlist him in our wish fulfillment fantasies or our utopian schemes for making our mark in the world. And, and that points to what I think is a, is a deeper problem. Unfortunately, there's a cure. And I use the word cure intentionally, suggesting that this is a sort of disease. And I certainly don't want to trivialize the particular virus that we're all concerned about right now. But the, the name I'm going to give this disease or this virus this morning is uh, the persona virus. Persona is a word that has to do with how we look to other people or want to appear to other people or even to ourselves. And, and so we can be very, very concerned about how we're coming across or how we're impressing others. There are studies that indicate that a half of millennials have as one of their main goals in life to be famous. And so, but, but I think it's, it goes way back further than that. In fact, Satan tried to, tried to contaminate Jesus with this very virus. Um, the season of, of Lent um, usually focuses, especially at the beginning, often throughout the season, on those three temptations that Jesus experienced in, in, the de in the desert. And the first two temptations are temptations where Jesus, or where the devil begins by saying, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, then, then jump off the pinnacle of the temple. In other words, if you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it to me. Prove it to yourself. And prove it 
to those people out there. They'd love to have that bread, those stones turned into bread. Like, like Moses, you know. Through Moses, God sent that manna every day. And they'd love it if you jumped off the temple. I mean, they, they, would, they would admire you. They would know you were the Messiah. Prove it. So yeah, he, he was tempting Jesus with the persona virus. And I think you know, it, it can manifest as trying to really impress others, or it can manifest as simply trying to bolster our self-esteem. I think that that persona virus is just, and and there's a lot of root causes, a lot of things that fuel it and and provide fertile soil for it. But like I said, fortunately, there's a cure. And uh, I think it's a pandemic. I think it's not only in the world, I think it's in the church. And and the cure that I'm going to suggest this morning is prayer and a particular kind of prayer. Um, it's prayer in Jesus' name. And you may be thinking, oh, I already do that. I'm good. Except I still struggle with the thing you're talking about. I, I always in my prayers with in Jesus' name. Actually, that's not what I'm talking about. And that's not what the Bible means. Did you know that we have no written prayer that ends in the words in Jesus' name until the 5th century in Latin. We have no written prayer in English that ends with the words in Jesus' name until 1789. That's after our American Revolution. So either praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean praying those words at the end of the prayer, or there's a whole lot of Christians through the centuries that weren't praying in Jesus' name. And I want to suggest to you that praying in Jesus' name has absolutely nothing to do with those words at the end of our prayer. Nothing whatsoever. In fact, there may be a huge inconsistency. So if I say, Lord, I could really, I could really use you know, a win at the lotto in Jesus' name. That's a travesty. So we cannot be praying in Jesus' name at all, and then we add those words at the end as sort of a magic, sort of a formula, abacadabra, now it's your turn. Now do what I want. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, it basically means, you know, as we think about the persona virus problem, the focus on myself, it means that we pray that Jesus would be glorified. And that Jesus, who is the Christ, the King, that his kingdom would come through our prayers. That, and like I said at the beginning, the, the, the prayer is about everything. We can pray about anything at all, and it's about one thing. It's about the kingdom of God. Christian prayers are about the kingdom of God. Of course, the kingdom of God has to do with everything. And so um, getting into that way of thinking, it's not just praying, but living our whole lives so that God's name would be glorified and that his kingdom would come on earth. That's basically what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And Jesus uh, reinforces that with this one prayer that he gave us. We call it the Lord's Prayer. 
He, uh, he teaches us to pray as he prayed at one point in the, in the Gospel of Luke. The introduction to this prayer is uh, the disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. They're watching Jesus to pray, read Jesus pray, and they're, and they're, they're thinking, Lord, we want to pray like you. He says, okay, this is how I pray. Now, Jesus doesn't say, this then is what you should pray, but how you should pray. Um, Yes, it's a fine idea to end our prayers in Jesus' name. Nothing wrong with that. I do that. And there's nothing wrong with reciting this prayer. Um, we are the oldest Christian document other than Scripture. It's called the Didache, probably written about the time of the Gospel of John in the late first century. It instructs Christians to pray this prayer three times a day. And I've shared with some of you before that it's this prayer as much as anything that drew me back to a central New Testament Christian faith when I was off in spiritual la-la land. And I'm so grateful for this prayer and for a 60-page little book by Evelyn Underhill that I read about this prayer when I was on a retreat. So, so yes, the prayer itself can be recited, and that's really important. But what it teaches us about prayer and what to pray for is even more important. Now, I believe that this prayer is about one thing, and that's the kingdom of God. And I'm absolutely convinced that this prayer is basically about the kingdom of God, and everything else in this prayer is related to the kingdom of God. And that's why often on Sunday mornings you'll hear me say at the end of our congregational prayer in silence, now let's ask for the kingdom to come. I know often pastors will say, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, and sometimes I've said that, but I'm trying to emphasize the fact that we're about to pray for the kingdom. And the reason I can say this with all confidence, that this is the central theme of this, of this prayer, is it's the, there's only seven lines to this prayer. And there's something called Jewish parallelism. A lot of the Psalms, the Proverbs, the author will say the same thing in a different way. Okay, and Jesus does that in this prayer. Your kingdom come, what's the next line? Your will be done, saying the same thing. The kingdom of God is where the, where the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's one way of explaining the kingdom of God. So he's emphasizing, this is, this is the heart, this is the crux of this prayer. Okay, And the reason I, another reason I can say that with all confidence is that everything Jesus said and did was about the kingdom of God. Um. And I hardly ever t- heard about the kingdom of God when I was a new Christian or when I grew up, and I grew up in the Reformed Church. Um, Jesus began his ministry by announcing the kingdom of God is upon you. And then he used a word that's really important to us Christians, and that's the word gospel, good news. He says, believe this gospel, believe this good news. The kingdom of God was Jesus' gospel. He began about a third of his parables by saying the kingdom of God is like... And the rest of his parables were all about life in the kingdom of God. This this prayer comes in the middle of a sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about the kingdom of God. Which is why uh, near the end of that scripture reading you heard, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness, that's the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's, that's that part. But seek first his kingdom. And it makes sense that if we're going to seek first the kingdom of God, we're going to pray first for the kingdom of God to come. Makes sense, right? 
And so, you know, after Jesus' resurrection, he, uh, he didn't stop teaching his disciples. The, the book of Acts tells us that between his resurrection and the 40 days or so and his, uh, and his ascension, he talked with his disciples about the kingdom of God. And, and really, as John Bright suggests, really, you could say that the theme of the entire Bible is the kingdom of God. For you know, different different authors use different terminology. Matthew uses the phrase "kingdom of heaven," being sensitive to his Jewish audience who didn't who preferred not to say the name of God out loud, so they would often say "heaven" rather than "God." So he's sensitive to his Jewish audience and says the kingdom of heaven. John, in his gospel, mentions the kingdom of God at the beginning. He says you can't enter, you can't even see the kingdom of God without being born again. And for the rest of his gospel. He calls the kingdom of God eternal life. Literally, eternal life is the life of the age or the life of the age to come. So that was, that was language he thought would be helpful for his particular audience. Paul sometimes uses kingdom of God, but most of the time he says, in Christ. He says it almost every sentence. In Christ, in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the kingdom. It's life in King Jesus, you see. So it's, it's just it's a theme that, that just fills, uh, fills the Bible. Um, I love this quote from Abraham Kuyper, a Dutchman, um, back 150 years ago, a Reformed Dutchman. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Sounds kind of uppity. But consider what that means. And fortunately, he showed us what that means. So he comes into this world sort of incognito, in disguise. And he starts revealing to people what happens when, when God starts reclaiming his territory. People get healed. The lame, the blind. The deaf, the paralyzed, even dead people are raised from the dead. That's what happens when Jesus says, this is mine. People get fed. Sinners are invited to Jesus' table. Sometimes he forgives people even before they ask for it. He calms the wind and the waves. It gives me a lot of hope for the future of this planet. God's not done with it yet. So it's really good news, really good news, that he's trying to reclaim this world in each one of us for himself. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And if that's what your kingdom is like, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Yeah. That's what we want. That's what we're praying for. And that's what we're willing to play our part in. So... um, I'm just going to, in the next few moments, talk about the first word and the last word of the Lord's Prayer. Because even though there, you know, there's some distance between these two words, they're connected. And then next week, we'll talk about all the stuff in between. Okay?
hour. From the very beginning, this prayer challenges my orientation to life. Challenges my trinity of me, myself, and I. It also challenges my understanding of our. Because, you know, our is, is, can be, you know, my family. It can be my, my company. It can be my school. It can be my country. It can be my church. And um, Jesus just wants to make clear that there's a different hour that, has, that takes precedence. And for example, when his, uh, when his family was concerned about him, they thought he was a little too into his work and ministry. They, they thought they would try to draw him apart to get some time away, get some perspective. Um, they were trying to come through the crowd, and someone said, hey, your family, your mom and your, and, and your siblings are, are wanting you. And he says, well, who's my mom? Who's my family? And he looked at his disciples and said, this is my family. Those who want to do the will of my Father in heaven, these are my mother and sisters and brothers. He wasn't shortchanging the importance of his biological family. He was saying in the kingdom of God, there's a new hour that takes precedence. And so it's our Father who art in heaven. There's no way that I'm as important a father to my sons as, as the father is. I'm just, I, I, don't, I, I can't compete with that, and I don't want to compete with that. It's that father that makes us brothers and sisters, you see. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters in Jesus. And, and the writer of Hebrews even talks about Jesus being our brother. And that's not to say that each of us isn't important as an individual, but what does it take to produce an individual human being? Two people. Two people. And it takes a community to produce an individual son and daughter of God. Each of us very precious to him. So let's go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, you know, it's, we're, we're right in the heart of it now. It's been some time since the Sermon on the Mount began to get a sense of who our refers to. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, his disciples. The crowds are listening on, okay? And um, they're having an opportunity to hear what life in the kingdom of God is like. So they can decide whether or not they want to be a part of it. They're welcome. They're welcome to listen on. They're welcome to join Jesus' band of, of followers to make Jesus the center of their lives. He doesn't force anyone, so they're listening on. But the, but the hour that he's referring to are those disciples. He's teaching them how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Part of the reason that's so important is that it's that particular group, that hour, that is absolutely essential to the mission. God's strategy is to have a group of people that revolve their lives around Jesus, 
that embody the life of God's kingdom and, and demonstrate for the rest of the world um, where, where this world is eventually headed. Sharon and I were reading a book. She reads to me when we drive, and uh, we were in Vermont last weekend. And it's a book by David Brooks. I think it's The Second Mountain? Yeah. And he offers it as a corrective to his more recent book he wrote five years ago, which was about character. And, uh, you know, a book on character, that's, that's a good idea. And it was highly acclaimed, bestseller. But he says this is meant to be a corrective to that. Because back then I was still steeped in American individualism. I was still thinking in terms of how each of us as individuals need to work on our character. And then he went through a divorce. And he realized that he was, he was consumed with his own journey, even with his own spirituality. And his wife wasn't really a part of the picture. And, and so that began a journey for him. He was completely broken. And I remember hearing about this. Some people know more about David Brooks than I do. He's a conservative commentator. But I heard he was checking out Christian communities. He was really impressed with certain Christian communities. I know now that his, his, his new wife is a Christian. And, and the word out there is that he's become a Christian too. But he's not talking about it right now. But I heard he was checking out these Christian communities where he says he really saw what community was really like. And clearly it moved him. And so now he's writing about community. And he says, you know, we still live in this individualistic culture, but we're all hungering for community. And so this gets back to the challenge we have as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ. And I think part of the challenge we have today is we have got a lot of competition. And there are people who will say, I experience community more at my CrossFit gym than I do in church. I experience community more in my self-help group or 12-step group than I do at church. I experience more community on my ball team than I do at church. It used to be that, you know, most people went to church. It was 60% of people went to church basically every Sunday back in the early 60s. That's where we look for community. That was just a sort of, I mean, there were other communities, obviously, that were important, but we just went to church expecting community. And, and, and we, you know, we, we didn't have to do very much to, to meet some of that need. But other groups are more than meeting that need. You know, I'm reminded of Oswald Chambers who says, the good is the enemy of the best. And good isn't good enough anymore. And it shouldn't be. We should be absolute experts at community. Part of the problem is we tend to read this book so individualistically. We, okay, pastor, what are you, you going to say to me? Give me something practical for me to practice in my life. 
Don't give me this community business. That's what the New Testament is about. It's equipping communities to be the body of Christ. And then we take those principles in terms of how we live out in the world. And so, and so Paul and the apostles would go into an area. They would share the gospel. That, that gospel would be accompanied with a miracle of healing. And that would be followed up with a miracle of community. And the communities that were formed were unprecedented. There's no precedence for the communities that were formed of, of Jew and Gentile, of government leaders and people who weren't even citizens, of civilized people and uneducated people, um, of slaves and slave masters, people of different ethnicities, being not just spread out in a building like this, but, but being kind of in, together in a house church. And this was unprecedented. This would have been viewed as absolutely impossible, and these early Christians would have said, you're right, it's not possible, apart from Jesus, apart from the supernatural power and work of Jesus in our, our lives. This would not be possible. It's, it's, it's a struggle even now. Read the letters, you realize there were struggles, okay? And so, and so this is the strategy, And the thing is, people at some level are hungering for community. Individualism on its own, it's just not working. It's, it's all we know. It's what our culture tells us to do. Follow your dreams. Pursue your, your dreams and ambitions in life. And then there comes a point in life where I did that, and I'm feeling empty. So there's actually a legitimate need that's out there. People are finding that need met to some degree already in other places, and we're supposed to be the experts. We're, we're, you know, and so you know, the early church, they, they did all this stuff together, and they loved each other. They shared the possessions with each other, and we're told that the, that the church grew daily. 3,000 people became 4,000 people became 5,000 people because there was a community that embodied the kingdom of God. And so, and so yes, Jesus says, May they be one so that, so that the world will know that you sent me. How's the, the world going to believe anymore that, that Jesus was actually the Son of God? The way they're going to believe it is that there's a group of people who love each other who aren't supposed to be able to love each other and do it deeply and passionately and with conviction and sacrifice. Not just for their own need, but because it's the mission. Because our lives belong to Jesus now. So that's just the first word. <laughs> and then there's the last word. And the last word in the Lord's Prayer is evil. No, I'm not going to tell you that you're evil. Don't worry about that. So, um, you know, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That was added on by the early church. That's why, like, the NIV doesn't even have it. The earliest manuscripts don't have it. I love it. It's a great ending. It's a beautiful ending. But it kind of takes the edge off. I mean, a prayer that ends with evil. Yikes. Deliver us from evil. So, so what, what is evil? What does evil try to do? Evil tries to divide Christians. Evil tries to water down Christian community. Evil tries to distract people from the mission 
and from this essential part of how the mission is taken, is, is carried out. And so it, this goes all the way back to the garden. Why, why did Adam and Eve suddenly realize they were naked? Because suddenly this other person was a separate person, a, a very different person, and they, they suddenly noticed how different they were. And then what do they, what do they start doing? They start blaming each other for what happened. Divide them. Get them to blame each other. You know, and rather, than, rather than to be reconciled with one another. And so, yeah, that's what evil wants to do. And the word evil, by the way, can be translated evil one. He wants to divide us. He wants to diminish us. He wants to, to water down our commitment to each other. He wants to distract us because he knows how absolutely crucial for the mission the church of Jesus Christ is in the life that it embodies together. Absolutely critical. And, and if we're not the body of Christ, the world is going to suffer. We say, oh, the world's just a terrible place. That's our fault. We're not living up to our calling. There's a direct connection between the body of Christ living as, as Jesus, the body of Christ in community, and what's happening in the world. And so that's kind of a negative note to end on, and so I'm not going to end there. And I want to encourage you with these words from Philippians 2. You've often heard me... Um, quote the part of Philippians 2 where Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped he made himself nothing became a servant even to the point of death even death on a cross but listen to how this passage begins therefore if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit if any tenderness and compassion. And I feel so encouraged because I see those things among us. I experience those things, all of them. In other words, we have, we have something to build upon. All these things are already happening. And then, and then Paul says, well, make my joy complete. So, so why is he talking about himself? He's in prison. It's pretty lonely. Do you want to bless me? Yeah, thank you for the financial gift you gave. It's really appreciated. I've learned to be content and everything, but I appreciate that very much. I'll be good for a while now, but if you really want to bless me, this is what you'll do. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Humility is a great antidote for um, persona virus. You know? In fact, humility wasn't even appreciated as a quality in the Roman Empire. And so Jesus, the king, says, oh, we're going to be humble here. You don't, you don't have to worry about yourself here. You don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to build yourself up here. You're just a valued part of the community. And now you can give yourself away, which is what David Brooks is saying. He's saying the, the way we find happiness is by giving ourselves away. 
And so that's what he says, you know, go all the way. Don't do it piecemeal. Don't do it partially. Play full out. Give yourself away. Serve others just as Jesus gave himself for you. Next week, we'll talk more about what the Lord's Prayer teaches us about how the kingdom comes and our part in it. A little later in the same chapter, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you to will and to work for his good purpose. And you know what I've always done? I've got that passage memorized. I've always applied that to me as an individual. Yeah, work out your salvation. He's talking about the community. Salvation is about restored communities, restored humanity, restored creation. That's the vision. It's new creation. So now let's work this out. Let's figure out how to do this. And don't worry, God himself is at work in us to enable us, to guide us. He's our good shepherd, and he will give us his spirit. That's why we're in such an advantageous position and compared to other communities to be a community. We've got Jesus living among us, and we're going to take him in again this morning, you see. So what does this mean for you? I have no idea. I just have to figure out what it means for me. And, 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 but it begins with realizing this, this is what it's about. This is how the world will know that Jesus is alive. And there's a lot of legitimate skeptics out there. And that is a, a level of community they don't find any place else. And Jesus is here to lead us and to help us. Well, we'll learn a bit more from the Lord's Prayer. I'll get a little more practical next week. Let's pray together. Father, I find myself so challenged. And I'm remembering the words of your son. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So help us know how to depend upon you, Lord Jesus. To lead us. To guide us. And that may mean just doing more of what we're already doing and allowing and asking your spirit to show the way. May it be so this week. Amen.